I want to talk a little bit about religion. It's been said by a man named David Dark that religion is merely the organizing narrative of your life. It's just the story that you really and truly and therefore practically and functionally believe. Therefore, everybody is religious. Now, that's important to be reminded of because especially in our day and age when there's so many tensions and so much rhetoric being ratcheted up, it's important to remember that even people who are currently decrying religion are themselves religious because they have some organizing narrative that they believe, at least at the functional, practical, walking around daily lives that we all lead. Now, that's really important and instructive for us as Christians to be reminded that we have an organizing narrative. We have a story. And when you've found yourself, perhaps, over these last few days and weeks, maybe getting angry, maybe seeing something in the news on one particular media outlet versus another, it's important to understand why that's happening. It's because somebody else has a conflicting story with yours, and it begins to invalidate your story. And so we have a tendency to, instead of seeking information for clarity, we seek affirmation. And so that really sort of determines all the different media outlets that we subscribe to or that we don't subscribe to, the conversations and the relationships that we have or that we don't have. Now, for Christians, it's really interesting because although we would claim and profess faith in a sovereign God who is good, many of us, if we're transparent and if we're honest, are rather transactional in our thinking. We still sort of functionally believe that if I do a thing, God will do a thing. If I give a thing, then God will give a thing. And whatever goes around comes around. But that's actually a false religion. It's nonsensical because it assumes the existence of some organizing cosmic force that does not actually exist. So that's going to lead us to our big idea for the morning, and it goes like this. There's no such thing as karma, but there is a sovereign king. There's no such thing as karma, but there is a sovereign king. And this morning, we're going to hear a wonderful story that really, really highlights that because that has been a fundamental human assumption for millennia. But this passage is going to draw a whole lot of attention to the fact that there's no such thing as karma, but there is a sovereign king. Now, in just a moment, we're going to hear a passage of Scripture read from the second floor. And I want to really ask you to pay close attention to what is read. Because if you pay attention to this passage, you're going to hear the payoff for the sermon that we're going to have here in just a moment. So we're going to hear from Ashton up on the second floor reading a passage of Scripture to us. Good morning. My name is Ashton Ordmundy. My husband works on the third floor in the sound booth. We've been members for about six months, and we are really happy to be here with our church family. Today, I will be reading Psalm 121, verses 1 through 8. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made the heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. 
the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word. I love it when a plan comes together. And one day it will. Hey, welcome now to the third floor to me. And I'm so glad to see all of you here. Last week, we took a little bit of a break in our sermon series on the book of Esther. And we talked about societal systemic sin. And that the only solution for that systemic societal sin is the gospel. Only the gospel can transform a life. Well, this morning, we're going to return to our sermon series in the book of Esther, and I want to very quickly just reorient you on where we are, how we got here, what's going on. I want to remind you, we are in the late 400s BC. We're in the Persian Empire. The king is Xerxes, the most powerful man on the face of the earth at this time. His empire has overthrown the Babylonian Empire, and now he is essentially the king of the world, or at least so it seems. Now, there are tens and tens of thousands, some estimate maybe even millions of Jewish people living throughout the Persian Empire, all 127 provinces that are all around the Persian Empire. And the capital of this Persian Empire is called Susa. It's exactly 900 miles to the east of Jerusalem. And here we find this woman whose name is Esther. But that's her Persian name. It's a takeoff of the word Ishtar, the fertility goddess of the Persian pantheon. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah, and it means myrtle, which is a very theologically significant thing in the book of Isaiah. Now, by the way, the whole thrust and theme of this book is because a whole bunch of people who were supposed to return to Israel after God's 70 years of exile of Israel, they don't go back. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah chapter 2 makes it very clear that after those 70 years, the Jewish people are to return to Jerusalem and they are to practice sacrifice in the temple again. But tens of thousands, perhaps as many as a million, do not return. But those who have returned to Jerusalem are worshiping, but they're already practicing faithlessly. They're already engaged in things that are displeasing the heart of God. And so the writer of the book of Esther is writing to a group of people to remind them that even in their faithlessness, God is still faithful. God will get it done. Aren't you glad? Because there have been a lot of seasons in my life, a lot of days in my life, a lot of prolonged periods of my life where I was not actively pursuing my God, and yet he is relentless in pursuing us. Now, you might remember the story. King Xerxes has a beautiful wife named Vashti, and he tries to parade her around in front of a bunch of people. She's not having it, and so he has her put away. All of his advisors, because this is what dudes do, hey, let's have a beauty pageant. Let's play The Bachelor and find you a pretty new bride. They do. They bring in this woman, Esther, and she is trained for 12 months on how to be a good wife. She wins. She becomes the queen. And then there's this bad guy we meet named Haman. Nice! When I say Haman, you're supposed to hiss. It's a Hebrew homonym that sounds like hatred. And he's the bad guy. He's the enemy of the Jews. And he has this sort of foil in his life, a man named Mordecai, who's also Jewish. He is Esther's older cousin. And he refuses to bow down to Haman. We don't know if that's a good thing necessarily, thank you, or a bad thing necessarily, but he won't do it. His name, Mordecai, is a takeoff of the Persian deity Marduk. We're not even told what his Hebrew name is. Well, 
This bad guy, Hatred, also known as Haman, has devised a plan so that all of the Jews throughout the entirety of the Persian Empire, including Judea, will be annihilated. Lock, stock, and barrel, man, woman, and child, they are all to be annihilated, a racial genocide. It's a very timely question for us to ask and to see the answer to. There's a lot of hatred ethnically and racially going on in the Persian Empire. So it goes like this. This bad guy seems like he's winning. Mordecai gets word to his cousin Esther and says, you have to act. Something must be done for such a time as this. You have achieved royalty in the palace. It's time for you to do something. But if you don't, don't think for a moment that you will be spared. You and your household will die. And there will be deliverance from another source. But remember, the name of God is never mentioned in this book. The law, the temple, Anything else, prayer is never mentioned. So at the end of chapter four, it looks as though the bad guys are going to win. All the deck is stacked against the main character of the story. So we're gonna look in Esther chapter five all the way through chapter seven. It's a wonderful story. We have to sort of take this all in one batch. Esther chapter five, six, and seven, I would say next to the book of Ruth are perhaps the two greatest stories in human literature. Esther 5, 6, and 7 is the stuff of which every other narrative draws its form from. And you have to understand, whoever wrote the book of Esther was literarily brilliant. They were genius. They set it up to where chapter 10 correlates with chapter 1, chapter 9 correlates with chapter 2, chapter 8 correlates with chapter 3, and it builds this tension, 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 until we finally get to chapter 5, and then right in the middle in chapter 6, we're going to have a significant pivot and a turning point that's going to draw some resolution in chapter 7. So you just stick with me, open your Bibles if you've got them. We're going to walk through this very quickly, beginning in Esther chapter 5. On the third day, now this is Esther having directed the maidens that looked after her and her cousin Mordecai for three days of fasting. We're not told that they pray. We assume that they do. But the author, I think, intentionally leaves that little nugget out. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes. You might say she got her hair all did. She put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. So she's going to go now and see him. Remember, if she shows up uninvited, he can have her put to death. That is the law of the land. You do not approach the king uninvited. It's perceived as a threat and you are removed. Verse 2. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. Now, that is really significant. See, the Lord God moves and sways the hearts of kings who have no interest in him. That does not dissuade him in the slightest. God moves the hearts of kings toward his people, whereas the enemy is always trying to sway the hearts of kings against God's people. But the king sees her standing there, and he finds favor in her sight, in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. She has found grace and favor in his sight. She's able to approach. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. That's an idiom or an expression in that kingdom in that day. She has an opportunity to spring and to make her request right here. Let's see how she responds. 
And Esther said, Hamana, 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 Hamana. It's not actually in the text, but that's sort of what happens here. If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Now, she's got an opportunity to actually make a request, but she doesn't. The writer doesn't give us any sort of indication if that's good or that's bad. We have a tendency to think that it's really clever, crafty, and creative. I'm not so sure. Because remember, the lives of perhaps as many as a million people are hanging in the balance, and she delays. This is a pretty significant thing. Verse 5, then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman, that's right, came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And this was incredibly rare. Other noblemen, other dignitaries were never to have access to the king's wife. They were very protective of their wives. So this was a big, big request. And Haman's feeling pretty good about himself. Thank you. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Here's her second chance. What's she gonna say? Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, here we go. The tide's gonna turn. The original initial readers of this are building in angst and the tension is mounting. What's she gonna say? Verse eight, if I have found favor in the sight of the king and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast. I will prepare for them and tomorrow I will do what the king has said. So she seems to be hedging a little bit. She seems to be protecting herself a little bit and yet we're going to see that even that frailty a sovereign God is going to use. He's going to superintend his perfect, precise purposes. Now then, verse nine. And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. He's euphoric. This is the greatest day ever. See, because Haman is not the bad guy to Haman. He's the good guy. See, he has an organizing narrative. He has a story that he has believed. And his organizing narrative is pride. He is the center of his universe. His own self consumes all of his own thinking. That is his organizing narrative. So please understand, it's not like he is sitting around looking and shopping online for black hats and cheesy mustaches. He's the good guy in his story. He's as happy as he can be. Finally, everything's turning up. Haman, yes. But when Haman saw Mordecai, the bad guy in Haman's story, sitting in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Remember, King Xerxes decreed that Mordecai was supposed to bow. And this Mordecai was not even obeying the king's edict. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. That's really interesting. She gets a name. We'll talk about that in a moment. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons. We'll find out later he has 10. All the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Here's the thing about people whose organizing narrative is pride. They've always got to evangelize. They've always got to give you the good news of how awesome they are. Look at my sons. Look at my possessions. Look at my wealth. Look at my promotions. Look how captain awesome I am. Wait, I don't feel like you're paying attention right now. I'm really awesome. 
Verse 12, then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate, then his wife Zeresh and all of his friends, who by the way, really like this guy's wealth, Remember this guy offered to pay 10,000 talents of silver? That's 375 tons of silver. This guy is loaded. And so they're feeding into his organized religion, his narrative of pride. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. Now, again, I have to make sure and explain. This is ets. It's a it's a stake. It's not a hangman's gallows like you would think with a rope and a noose. No, no, no. It's an impaling stick. 50 cubits. That's 75 feet tall. That's a seven and a half story building. Build one of these impaling stakes and hang him high. He will therefore be higher than all the trees. He will be above all the structures of the city so that everybody can see what happens when you oppose the good guy in his story known as Haman. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. The idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. It looks like the good guys, in our estimation, are going to lose. Everything is stacked against them. There's been an edict sealed with the king's ring to kill all of the Jews, and now this guy is going to have Mordecai placed, impaled on a stake, not just any stake, 75 feet tall. Now, the entire thrust of the book of Esther begins to be demonstrated here in chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. It's really rather subtle. You might miss it, but you mustn't. Chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. That's an interesting dink we say in theological circles. The king could not sleep. You might say there was a holy insomnia happening to the king. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and there were read before the king. You remember we heard in Psalm 121, he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. The king was supposed to be sleeping, but for some reason this night he could not sleep. And so he gets up to do what some of us do when we can't sleep, a little reading. And he says, hey, bring the, the chronicles. We know from extra biblical accounts that there was a lot of records kept in the Persian Empire. And remember, by the time this happens with King Xerxes not being able to sleep, the initial incident that he's going to see read is five years old. By this point, Xerxes has been king for 12 years. And so a lot has happened in the last five years. He vaguely remembers this deal. Verse 2, And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. Oh, yeah, five years ago. I remember something about that. Here are these guys' names repeated again, recorded in history. These inner uh, imperial guards of the inner sanctum had plotted a, uh, an assassination attempt, and Mordecai found out about it, told what happened to Esther, and his life was saved. And remember that frustratingly, no reward was ever given to Mordecai. Instead, the other guy, Haman, had gotten a promotion. Verse 3, and the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. 
And had something been done for him, then what's about to happen would never have taken place. You see, we don't always know what's going on, but there is a sovereign God who always does. This sovereign God knows everything. Verse 4, And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows, the impaling stake that he had prepared for him. So he gets up early. The king's not asleep, he's up reading, and then he hears somebody who's come in. Well, yeah, it's that guy. Haman is coming to say, hey, king, I'm kind of like the man, right? I have everything. I'm number two in the entire empire, but there's that one guy. I'm going to have him hanged on this impaling stake that I have made. And the king's young men told him, Haman is in there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in. Dun, dun, dun. Cue the Darth Vader music. And the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And of course, Haman, whose organizing narrative was pride, said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. Now, I've ridden some nice horses. I've never ridden a horse that was so fancy, it had its own crown. That's pretty awesome. So Haman does not ask for money. He's got plenty of cash. He wants glory. What does the man who is proud always want more of? Pride. He's never, ever satisfied, ever. He's got power. He needs a little more. He's got prestige. He wants a little more. He's got respect. But there's one guy who won't give it to him, and so he needs a little more. And so what Haman suggests is that this person essentially be treated as though he himself were the king, wearing the king's robes, the king's horse, all these things, and paraded through town, led by the most noble dignitary. Well, Watch this, verse 9. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the, uh, to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, I like your thinking. I like where your head's at. Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai, oh baby, the Jew, who sits comes together. Have I mentioned that? We're nothing if not nimble. So many failure points, and we will explore them all. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai. I mean, can you just imagine Haman's face and the sound it made when his jaw hit the floor? I mean, you're supposed to hear that sound. This is a wonderful story. He dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. 
He's hiding his face because he's so mad and he's so ashamed. Now, this next verse is really interesting. Verse 13, and Haman told his wife, Zeresh. Remember that Haman is a homonym for hate. It's very interesting that this woman gets named. Most of the time, women like this don't get named. I mean, you remember Lot's wife. She's just Mrs. Lot. We don't know her name. Well, this woman is named because her name, Zeresh, is a takeoff of the Hebrew word Zarach, which in English, Zarach would translate to Hachoo! So you've got hatred and sneeze as the enemy of the Jews. So when you hear this story, you're supposed to go, and this is not popular and wise in the time of a pandemic. I know that. But it's the idea of a, of a blowing sound. So you have and Haman and Zeresh, his wife. This is what becomes of the enemies of God. Isn't this interesting? These names actually mean something. Verse 13, and Haman told his wife, Zeresh, you know, sneeze and blow over there, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men, don't you love that? These wise men, these Zoroastrian astrologers, who apparently seen some sign, and his wife, blow, or because they're going to name her one more time, said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is one of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. <laughs> Where was that council yesterday, by the by? They flipped pretty quickly, right? Well, while that's being spoken, you can almost hear the screeching of the tires on the black van that comes around the corner. Verse 14, while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Oh, baby, now he's going, can you just see his face? Now he's got to show up and go to this fifth banquet that we're hearing about in the book of Esther. This is the fifth banquet. There's a, there's a scene there. There's a series that we're supposed to pick up on. There's a pattern, this feasting, this banquet. So chapter 7, very quickly. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, Esther, what is your wish? Queen Esther, it shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. This is the third opportunity she has had. How is she going to respond this time? Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if I please the king, let my life be granted for me, or granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be annihilated, is the word there, to be killed and to be annihilated. If we had just been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king." Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? Now, can you just imagine his face at this point? Those eyes bug out all the way to here. And Esther said three things about him. A foe and an enemy, this wicked hate. Oof, this is not going to go well. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. Now, it doesn't tell us exactly why, but the thought is he doesn't know what he's going to do now. He knows that he has given his signet ring to be the formal final edict of the killing of all the Jews. It's in his ring signet. What's he going to do? He's perplexed. He's flummoxed. 
But Haman stayed to beg for his life. That is illegal. When the king leaves the room, you must leave the room. You are never permitted to be alone in the room with him. It's thought that perhaps the servants were in there, but the point is Haman should have gone out immediately, and he didn't. He was pleading for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king, you think? Verse 8, And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Oh, that's what we call in today's verbiage, bad optics. She's falling on, or Haman is falling on the queen. This is not going to go well. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Ooh. The henchmen came in. They threw a bag over his head, essentially, and they carried him out. Now watch this. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, you know, uh, I just happened to know that this guy had a 75-foot impaling stake built in his backyard. Apparently, Harbona was not a big fan of Haman. There's a quick lesson there. Always be nice to people, even if you think they are less than you. Philippians 2, last week we talked about we are to count others as more significant. Apparently, Haman never paid any sort of kindness or respect to Harbona whatsoever. And so Harbona is very quick to say, ooh, uh, you didn't ask me, but if you're curious, I happen to know where there just so happens to be a 75-foot tall impaling stake. Mm, it's in his backyard. They were going to play tetherball with it instead. Let's stick him on it instead. We'll make ourselves a giant Haman sickle. It'll be awesome. <laughs> One of the king's eunuchs in attendance of the king said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, by the way, is standing in Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. This is God's word. It's a wonderful story that seems like turnabout's fair play. It seems like what goes around comes around, but that is never the point of any passage of scripture. There's no such thing as karma, but there is a sovereign king. And we must always remember when things occur that we don't quite understand, that we don't like, that don't support and affirm our organizing narrative, there's no such thing as karma, but there is a sovereign king. So how are we now to practically, functionally, actually walk around in our everyday living lives with that truth, with that knowledge, with that memory? Well, I only have one point of application. I think it's timely in Esther's day. I think it's timely in our day. And it goes very simply like this. There are no good guys. We as Westerners like to put ourselves as the hero in every story, but there are no good guys. There are no good guys. Everybody thinks that they're the good guy. Everybody that you ever encounter, everybody that you disagree with, everyone who just makes you so mad you want to spit, they think they're the good guy and that you're the bad guy. But you're going, I'm not the bad guy. I'm the good guy. After all, I'm me. I'm right because I'm me. My group is right because it's my group. Everyone thinks they're the good guy. But what Scripture's telling us is there is not one who is righteous, Psalm 14. No, not even one. The Apostle Paul will pick up on that in Romans chapter 4. There is not one who is good. You're not the good guy in your story. You're the bad guy. You're Haman in your story. 
You are, as Peter will say, by nature in Acts chapter 2, a God-hater. Now, we've been hissing when we hear that name. But it's me. It's me. I am by nature a God-hater. What I deserve is to be impaled 75 feet high. There's no good guys. The only good guy in the story is the one who's not even in the story. Isn't that amazing? And remember, God's no hero. He is a sovereign God. He doesn't swoop in and save the day. He is always at work. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. <laughs> Here's the crazy thing. Esther's characterized by banquets. And the story's not over. Yes, the bad guy, so to speak, is impaled. But there's still a king's edict for the annihilation of an entire race of people. Lord willing, we're going to conclude our story in Esther next Sunday and see how that's going to unfold. But I want to remind you that for 2,000 years since the Jewish people essentially constitute, for the last 2,000 years throughout the Old Testament, every single time somebody tried to annihilate or slaughter the Jews, you know what the net result always was? <laughs> A feast. Pharaoh tried to kill the firstborn children of Israel, and Moses pleaded with him, don't do it. Don't do it. Whatever you proclaim, God will do to you. You see, God often likes to whip people with their own stick. That's what happened to Haman. That's what happened to you if pride is the religion of your life, your organizing story and narrative. Pharaoh, don't do it. And what became of Pharaoh? He lost his firstborn. And we have the feast of Passover. Hundreds of years later, we have this man in the Persian Empire named Haman who tries to slaughter and annihilate the Jews. What we'll find out next week is what ends up coming of that is the salvation, the, project, the protection, the deliverance of the Jewish people. And we have the Feast of Purim, which Jewish people to this day still celebrate and commemorate. About 300 years after that, a Greek general named Antiochus Epiphanes tries to slaughter all of the Jews, and he splatters pig's blood in the temple. We have, from the deliverance of that, the feast and the festival of Hanukkah. And then about 120 years after that, there comes a man named Jesus, who is true Israel, the son of God. <laughs> who didn't get what he deserved. He got what I deserved. And they hanged him on a tree because he became the hatred that I am. And we have a feast called communion, the Eucharist, because when that judgment was poured out on him that I deserve, it was the guarantee that I will never have to experience that which my chaman, my hatred merits.